From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode number 32. Today's show is brought to you by lynda.com, where you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by industry experts, MailRoute, a secure hosted email service for protection from viruses and spam, PDF Pen Scan Plus from Smile, the app for mobile scanning and OCR, and Warby Parker. Glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined, as always, by the one and only Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. <laughs> We're doing this a little bit earlier than, than usual because of other other commitments I've got. But that's fine. I'm awake. I've had two cups of tea. I'm ready to go. So we have a big show today. We have a Mike Watches the Movies at the end. Spinal yeah, tap. We, we do. So everybody uh, who's looking at the length of this episode and thinking, good God, why is it so long? The answer is there's a Spinal Tap at the end. And as we established on episode 30 with John Syracuse, um, this is a little bit like the post-show of ATP. You don't need to listen if you don't want to, <laughs> because we're going to talk about a movie at the end. But uh, we hope you will tune in, because it should be fun. I have lots of notes. Good. Lots and lots and lots of notes about Spinal Tap, so I'm very excited about that. But we have a we have an action-packed show anyway. I mean, this Apple Watch stuff that we want to talk about, I think we've both... Well, you have seen them already, but you've been for a try-on. I've been for a try-on, and I'm really excited to talk about that. Um, and we have a couple of other little bits and bobs that we want to talk about today. But first, as always, why don't we dive into a little bit of follow-up? A little bit of follow-up, yeah. Um, I wanted to mention again, I'm still receiving feedback from episode 30, which is not surprising since that was just a week ago, um, because we did our little interim episode about the MacBook that was 31, um, messing up all schedules and calendars for upgrade forevermore um that we I, I continue to hear from people who point out that people did word processing and spreadsheets on phones years before the iphone i'm not sure if we actually said literally it was not available at that time i don't think we did but if we did we were engaging in a hyperbole i was typing things in on a palm with an external keyboard years before that our point again just to say it one more time our point was that the vast majority of people who were enthralled by the idea of the iphone were not people who had been using windows mobile and demanded a powerful spreadsheet which is what is uh the thesis of of becoming steve jobs and they're wrong about that um and a few people saying, but I use spreadsheets on my Windows mobile phone before the iPhone came out and I relied on it or I needed to SSH into a Unix system somewhere and so I was disappointed by the iPhone not having apps. Those people, their experiences are perfectly valid. But once again, what I'd say is that's not what the book's trying to make as its premise. And um, and I think what it's trying to say is not accurate that the iPhone did not meet with a negative reaction because it didn't run apps because I don't I think that it, it was actually spectacularly loved even though it didn't have apps and I don't think powerful spreadsheets were really what people were looking for and uh, were like saying well it doesn't have powerful spreadsheets I'm not going to buy the iPhone until there's an app store and that was the point there not that there weren't apps I had a Palm Pre and a Palm 3 before that I had lots of lots of apps um, but that was that was sort of not the point. But yes, we validate that you, there were people out there who were trailblazers who were using apps on phones before the iPhone came out. Yes, absolutely. I lost my place in the audiobook. Um, oh no! <laughs> it's, it's okay. I found it again. I found it again this morning. Uh, this is because of an, an, a phone restore that I had to do, which that's a whole lot of a story for another day. Um, <laughs> and, is that day Wednesday? <laughs> no, I, do you know what? I don't know. I, I'm. I, I've dealt with it this morning, but I'm I'm too annoyed at my phone carrier to even want to. Anyway, uh, do you file your personal experiences now as that's an upgrade that that's an analog that's a connected? Do you do that now? Yes. 
Okay. Especially with topics. So. so like try on, that's upgrade. Yay. Uh, photos, that's connected. <laughs> the, that is a thing that I do actually go through in my brain. It's a it's an interesting way to live. Yeah. But um uh, so as I was scrolling through the the audiobook, the, the first place that I landed on was the iPhone thing again, and I got really mad again. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, and here I am again with talking rubbish. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, it just upsets me. I, I, it makes me really angry. I, I saw somebody interacting with one of the authors on Twitter and uh, pointing out a factual error, and they're like, yeah, we'll fix that in a future edition. And I thought, Geez, at this point, do I, do I need to write to them and say I've got a list of about fifteen things you got wrong? Do you I want think... me to send it to you? Some, I mean, I I'm should. happy to I'm happy to send them the list, but I also have now been on the record as complaining about their book, so I don't know. Um, maybe I will. But uh, the reason I, you're I, complaining about it, uh, it, it well, there's two points: is the factual inaccuracies, and then this part that we're about to talk about now. Shall I shall I read this uh, this feedback from um, did from this Alberto? Come from, yeah, did this come from Alberto? Alberto sent this. Yeah, this was yesterday. While I was on uh, Twit, actually, I got this long tweet chain from Alberto. Sure, go ahead and read it. Okay, so this is this is verbatim from Alberto. You stated on multiple podcasts that the era of 1985 to 1997 was somehow not a failure for Apple. You can research their filings. At one point, they were losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I think you're remembering the er- the era sentimentally. Regardless of the good memories you have of the era of your start in the Apple community, the facts are that Apple was hemorrhaging cash for a large part of the time that Steve Jobs was exiled. Arguing it in any other way does a disservice to your listeners. You fell in love under understandably, with a computer that was nevertheless a financial failure. You say that because you loved because you loved the Mac, it somehow means that Apple was not a failure for more than a decade. The facts are that it was. Right. It's good. And I, I, I went through the trouble of getting all the tweets and putting them all together so that I could get this piece of feedback in there, which was not tagged as Ask Upgrade. It was just sent directly to me. Um, and I, I think we mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again now. Um, part of this is the perspective of financial versus product, which is what he's saying is, look, you can say you like the products. It doesn't matter. It was a failure. They lost money, <laughs> which I don't agree with. I think that you can have a movie that's really great that is a financial disaster. And those two things are very different. So you could have a company that's really poorly managed and yet make products that you that you like. On Twit yesterday, Ben Thompson made the argument um, that, uh, I mean, it was in the context of something that Leo Laporte said that was really um, questionable. But he, he basically said, uh, Jason, you were stupid to use the Mac in the 90s <laughs> because Windows was because Windows was everywhere and better. Um, and I, I don't agree. I don't agree at all. I feel like the, that in during this era, um, I, I loved using the Mac. I knew how to use Windows and didn't like it and thought it was kind of awful and icky and was willing to put up with the fact that the Mac was incompatible with anything. Not just not just incompatible, Mike. Uncompatible. <laughs> it was <laughs> unable to be combated um, it, it, because because of all the benefits of. Uh, I mean, it was it was nicer and the the it, and you could do almost everything, but you only had like one or two apps that did it instead of twenty, which is what it was like on Windows twenty, mostly crappy and maybe one that was really great. Uh, but you know, again, I don't want to re refight the reason like why Mac users uh, stuck with the Mac even when it was only ten percent, other than to say. Please don't discount our experience by rewriting history now and saying, well, look, that because Windows had 90%, you guys, you know, you guys shouldn't have been using 
uh, the Mac and it, you know, because that's not what it was like when it was actually happening. It was not like that at all. So that's part point one. The other point here is that Alberto's doing a lot of, you know, at one point they were losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, for a large part of the time that Steve Jobs was exiled, Apple was hemorrhaging cash. And I have to say, I think Alberto is a little bit of a victim of this narrative, which is that Steve Jobs left Apple, it became a disaster immediately, and then Steve Jobs came back and saved it. It's like, no, it became a disaster gradually, and at the end, it really accelerated and it fell apart. And they could have made some decisions early on, maybe, that would have saved the company, maybe not. Um, and that, that uh, Scully had problems executing, but yet at the same time he had, as John and I said, the, the product vision of doing the Newton. I mean, he was not wrong in the grand scheme of things about where tech was going, but they were wrong and too early about a lot of the details. But again, this is not my, I'm not trying to argue a business standpoint. My point about the Becoming Steve Jobs book is it's written by business journalists. And so it's very easy for them to look at the Apple of, of the uh, 80s and 90s and say it was a failure. Because from a business standpoint, it was a failure. It was a company that went into decline and then almost went out of business. What I'm saying is you cannot extend that and say that that there was not other stuff going on at Apple in terms of the products, in terms of the Mac community that wasn't valuable between 1985 and 1997. I know the mid-90s were kind of a dark time for Mac users in general, not just Apple's business. It started to fall apart, but that is, uh, you know... If I had to simplify my argument about the non-jobs period of Apple, uh, the the interregnum, I would say people take 12 years and make it seem like two, the last two. And that's not accurate. There was a lot of interesting stuff that happened before it all fell apart in the mid-90s. And I think that we've simplified that story. And as for uh, doing a disservice to my listeners, as Alberto claims here, I would say I'm just trying to be a little bit contrarian here. I feel like there is this common narrative about how Apple was a total disaster while Steve Jobs was gone. And the, and there was essentially, it's getting boiled down to, there was no value and it was a wasteland and tumbleweeds were rolling through. And I don't think that's true because this is the era where I discovered the Mac, loved the Mac, became an avid Mac user, started reading all the Mac magazines, and eventually decided I wanted to write about it professionally. So maybe I was a crazy person to do all those things, but I think I saw some value there in that subculture. And it's difficult for me to see that all get collapsed into um, the, you know, the Gil Emilio and Michael Spindler era, <laughs> because uh, that was bad. But there were a lot of good times before it went bad. And I am a product person, so I don't really care about the fact that Apple lost money at the end. I mean, that would have put them out of business. I care more that their products at the end weren't very good um, and and that they couldn't ship a next generation operating system. Not, uh, their, their, again, it's a financial thing versus a product thing. I care about the fact that their products were really great and then their products weren't great. Not that they lost money at some point. And that's a totally valid argument if you're viewing it from a business perspective. But I'm not saying Apple was a great business when Steve Jobs was gone. I'm saying Apple made a lot of great products and there was a lot of great stuff in the Mac ecosystem in that period. Um, you know, and that and that's the difference between my perspective about Apple in that era and the uh, becoming Steve Jobs perspective. And that's you know fair enough. I totally get where they're coming from, but I think that there was much more nuance there than um, than. So now I've just made Alberto mad mad again. Yeah. So anyway, that's my that's my take on. It. That's why I wanted to bring it up. I feel like I feel like what I'm saying is not talked about today. People just kind of throw that whole era in the in the in the bin because it ended badly. And it's like you know, do you? If, if there's a marriage that goes for, for 20 years and the last two, it falls apart and they get a divorce, do you look back at the previous 18 years and say that whole time was a disaster? It's like, well, not necessarily. They might have had a 
you know, a good 15 years and then it started to fall apart. And, you know, let's not rewrite history is what I'm saying. So I think something that's worth remembering that maybe tries to put this into context a little bit is the parallel with Pixar. Like Pixar was spending and just hemorrhaging millions and millions of dollars before they did the deal with Disney. Like, they were just spending all of Steve Jobs and the investors' money, right? And they were making interesting things, but they were just spending, spending, spending loads of money until Toy Story, right, came and saved right. them. But nobody, like, especially in the book, they don't call Pixar irrelevant. They talk about how exciting Pixar was even during this time. It's, it's, it's just a state of perspective. Like, you you see it, you see it differently because you're in... In the weeds, enjoying right. the products. It's, it, it's you. You be, you be here long enough in, in 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 this world, and you realize that there are things that you've been around. Once you're around long enough, people start to point things that happened in the past, and you say that's not what happened, and that doesn't happen until you've been around long enough for enough time to go past that. People's narratives are shaped by the present, and you're remembering things from the past. But um, the last point I'll make about this is is uh, based on something that was mentioned in the chat room. You know, was the Mac a critical success? The Mac was always considered better than Windows, and it just didn't work because it, it, Apple didn't have Apple was making a single product like they are today. That's their operating system and their hardware and the PC were cheap and plentiful and businesses uh, bought them and you know the, the market share went all to Microsoft but um, as a point in in my argument what I'll say is it wasn't until Windows 95 I mean that that the game really 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 changed and that Apple lost its its upper hand um, and I don't think Windows 95 was as good as the Mac either but it was close enough and for people who didn't live through that era Windows users were furious about Windows 95. Um, I remember it well. They were furious about it. And you know why they were furious about it? The common complaint from Windows 3.1 power users about Windows 95 was, why did you turn my computer into a Mac? So, you know, it, it, essentially in 95, that's when Microsoft was like, we got it. And they like totally nailed it, knocked off the Mac entirely, and were ready to roll. And that was when the jig was really up for Apple. That was that was the last. And I, I think in the book, they say that. And I, I although I don't agree with the book's claim that it made Windows better than the Mac at that point, it made it good enough that it didn't matter uh, to most people. And, and, and Apple's differentiators kind of fell away at that point. And that, that was really, things were bad enough at that point at Apple, but that just made it worse. And then, you know, at that point, they're two years away from going out of business. I hope we don't have to talk about this again. Yeah, I think that's it. I think we wrapped it up. Um, the, not, the only not other that fe- it's bad, but we, I feel like you have to keep... Yeah. No, this is, I, I just, I, I feel like that was enough because I, th- I think Alberto made an interesting argument, although I disagree with it, and I wanted to address that. Um. Somebody, uh, listener John, not John Syracuse, wrote in to say, it occurred to me that you and John Syracuse and me and John Syracuse should write the definitive Steve Jobs Apple book. I don't think this is what we are good at, but uh, I appreciate it. That's very nice. Um, I had two other pieces of, of follow-up, and then we'll move on. One is that a quote that I didn't mention in episode 30 about from the book that just bugged me is there's a guy named Mike Slade who worked at Next, and, and they're talking about Steve Jobs and, and Lorraine when they had kids, and and. He says, they were classic new parents. They did everything wrong. They were both hippies. So the kid was in their bed the whole time. The kid was only breastfed. So what did the kid do? He screamed all the time and was hungry all the time because duh, right? So within a week, they looked like prison camp survivors. This is Mike Slade. I don't know Mike Slade, but, uh, you know, I I like... no, there's nothing like telling other parents what they should do. Like, you know the answers and they don't. Um, and as somebody who was not a hippie, but also co-slept with our baby and breastfed our baby, uh, hey, Mike Slade, uh, can you see the finger I'm holding up here? 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, boy, yeah, people love telling other parents what to do. That's not a hippie thing. That's, I mean, come on. And again, you know, this guy seems to seems to think like he knows how to be a parent, uh, and uh, Steve Jobs doesn't and uh that that guy was a jerk and i thought that was just an interesting quote in the book where i where i was like i don't know who this guy is but i don't like him now (laughs) because of that quote judgmental much um and there's a last thing which is from listener shireen who said i'd listen to the robot or not podcast with jason and john syracusa just saying whatever which i say which i say i'm working on it (laughs) i'm working (laughs) on it with i'm working on john more more accurately to see if we can uh delve deeper into whether things are robots or not so that's it that's all the follow-up so let me take a quick break before we get into our topics this week um and let me just take a moment to thank our friends over at lynda.com they are the online learning platform with over three thousand on-demand video courses that can help you strengthen your business technology and creative skills for a free 10-day trial visit lynda.com slash upgrade that's l-y-n-d-a.com slash upgrade linda is for people that want to solve problems people that are curious people that want to learn interesting things who want to make stuff happen maybe learn some new skills maybe you've really wanted to learn a bit more about excel maybe you want to learn some shortcuts or learn how to finally use pivot tables linda.com can help you with that maybe you're interested in getting started with some design but you want to learn some fundamentals i mean you can learn photoshop you can learn illustrator learn.com but maybe you want to understand how to use color more effectively or how to use typography to effectively get your points across lynda.com has a wide breadth of courses and they can help you with all of this stuff all of lynda.com's uh teachers the people that do the videos they're total experts they have a real passion for teaching and they create these videos that you can stream anywhere wherever you want whenever you want they have great apps they have a great player uh, on the web Uh, their apps are for ios and android their web player has transcripts that you can follow along or you can search for answers in the transcripts click them and go straight to that point in the video and all of these courses can be streamed on demand Um, you can also watch them in any way that you want so you can maybe watch uh, this chunk here so this 10 minutes and then you want to watch another 10 minutes and you can schedule them up like that you can also create your own playlist of different videos across different courses and watch them whenever you want wherever you want as i say and you can also share those playlists with friends colleagues and team members too your lender.com membership is going to give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics all for one flat rate if you haven't yet checked out lender.com you definitely should because whether you're looking to become an industry expert you're passionate about a hobby or just want to learn something new lender.com has the videos for you and you can get yourself a free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com upgrade thank you so much to lynda.com for their continued support of upgrade and relay fm yay so mr jason snell um you wrote a a little piece about uh buying and trying uh, an apple watch now we are all up uh whatever time it was in your in your local time zone in the real fm chat room and everybody was talking about how much they were refreshing the uh <laughs> the the web page and and using mm-hmm. the app and such like that um as we were all buying our apple watches uh what do you what do you uh what did you put an order in for i oh my it was oh, it was so stressful like what am i going to do what am i going to do what am I, and i'm watching the clock tick because here it was midnight so i just stayed up what am i going to do what am i going to order you know and i i kept looking at the different prices and i kept seeing uh you know stainless steel and it's like $700 and uh in the end i went with what turned out to be 
what everybody went with, it seems almost, which is I went with the space gray sport with the black band. Because I liked how the space gray, I like the black band rather than one of the bright color bands. And and it came with the space gray color aluminum body instead of the uh, the uh, more silvery aluminum body. And I liked the look of that too. All of my other iOS devices are space gray as well. I like the look of that color. Um, and so that's what I placed an order for. And at the same time, I made a try-on appointment uh, for the next morning, the first slot the next morning, or the second slot, I guess, 10, 15 a.m. Uh, the next day. So uh, now, meanwhile, you also ordered something and made a try-on appointment, right? Yep, I ordered the sport with the blue band. Uh-huh. Um, not to criticize your uh, choice here, but one of the reasons I didn't go with the space gray is it limits the bands you can you can use, in my opinion, because um, a lot of the attachments for the bands are in the steel color, um, so you, they were kind of clash against each other you kind yeah, of end I'll, up if that bothers you it might not bother you I, I i don't know i i don't feel like i feel like the shiny stainless steel is not close to either of the textures of the sport watch so if it really bothers you i think that you need to get an, a stainless steel <laughs> instead of it so i it didn't bother me uh and, and i decided i did decide to buy an extra band after doing my try on experience uh, but i just i decided i liked the look of the black um the black watch and the space the black box strap and space gray watch more so sure. uh, but i think your your opinion is valid the blue band is really cute that was my other thing that i was thinking of in the yeah. sport because it's kind of adorable i like, I like blue it. things i yeah. like it I, ideally i would have wanted a black uh band but i yeah. i do just i also personally do just prefer the aluminium the, the pure aluminium look to the mm. to the gray so this is one of the things I found so interesting. So I read uh, your post about the try-on. Um, I've read Stevens and Max Parkies. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I have found the most interesting is every single person has completely different opinions about the way the bands look, about yeah. the way the bodies look. It, and I've never seen it like this before. That's why you got to try them on. It, it, it's, it's, just re- it's reinforcing the fact that this comes down to taste. Like Stephen said that he thought that the the aluminium felt cheap and because it was light. And I felt like the steel was heavier than I would have wanted and was happy I went with the aluminium. Like there's so there's so many different like some people say they really love the modern buckle, some people say the leather feels like plastic. Like it's so interesting to read everybody's different opinions on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, and I wonder whether it ticks over with uh, uh, where it's just fashion and it's personal, and people have different, way different opinions about like what they wear on their wrist. Then it uses different parts of your, you know, brain, different ju- judgments you make than if it's just a computer that you're carrying around or something. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I definitely formed opinions about the bands uh, through through trial, although they were very similar to the opinions I had before. They, they, uh, I, I, some of them reinforced, a few of them changed. But yeah, everybody's got their their take on it. I I did somebody asked me to p- explain what the colors are and I said, "Well, the standard sport reminds me most of like the original iPhone back. Um I I it's a little uh, yeah. it, it's not quite like the like the MacBook Pro um aluminum aluminum. Uh it it feels a little bit hazier like 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 that original iPhone. The space gray one is like the space gray back of a of a current iPhone. Um, and then the stainless steel is like the back of an iPod classic. It's that shiny stainless steel. Um, 
and they all have their value. Although, honestly, we can also overthink this because um, mostly what you see is the screen, <laughs> mm-hmm. and what the the metal color is really just kind of on the sides and the and the the crown. It's not super prominent. I mean, it's there, but uh, you know, the face is black. And I actually like that's one of the reasons why I liked the uh, the uh, space gray as well is that it it I liked how it went with the black face of the watch. But uh, you know, it's fashion. It's because luxury, Mike. Because luxury. So yeah. this was my first experience with an Apple Watch. Ah, yes. Yeah, I realized that that I, I unlike most people the, who go to the try-on experience, I had tr- I had tried the Apple Watch on a couple of times yeah. before. But it was very different to be in the store with a trained salesperson instead of being with a, you know, a, a, one of the the PR people in a crazy media room. So so what was your experience of the of using the of trying on the Apple Watch? So uh, I went. We're, uh, to Covent Garden, um, which is, I think, the largest Apple store in the world, maybe. Um, it's definitely one of the biggest. It's it's insane. It's multiple floors, and the floors are just huge. It's, it's a humongous mm. store, but it's a really great store. Um, it's my favorite because there's a lot of real natural light, huge windows. They have a skylight. It looks fantastic in there. So it was a really great... Um, I, I was actually trying on the watch underneath the skylight, which was pretty sweet because it, it just looked pretty good. So uh, I booked the appointment in the morning and I went in and you kind of go in and they check you in on their easy pay terminals that they have. Um, so they, they just check you in and I saw the guy take some notes about me, which is, I thought was quite funny. Like so that, so that the person who was coming to pick me up could recognize me. So he's like describing what I was wearing. But I was with my girlfriend too because we, we both booked appointments like she had 130 i had 145 so we could try them on together which they were totally mm-hmm. down with they're like yeah we'll just get someone to take you both and, and we'll do them in one so i thought that was pretty cool so uh we were taken over by a guy his name was ben and ben was very nice and uh he took us over to the tables because they had just these blank tables now in stores that don't have anything on them except these like blue leather pads that they put the watches down on and the drawers, I thought, was so cool. They're, they're opened by like some sort of magnetic lock, which is when they put their easy pay terminal. This is like an iPod touch of a chip and pin machine on the back. I don't know if you have those in America. Yeah. Okay. So um, they hold the, the, the terminal up to the drawer and the drawer unlocks and they can open the drawer and uh, they can see inside. I'm going to put some pictures in the show notes that I took. So like there's links to some tweets with some pictures in them. Um, so you'll be able to see like what the drawers inside looks like and stuff like that. So I'll put those in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app of choice or at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 32. Um, so I, I basically then we had some time to try everything on and they had a, they have a selection of models. What I found was really interesting. They do not have 42 silver aluminium. They just didn't uh, have them. In the entire store, huh. didn't have them. All of the drawers had the exact same configuration. They had 38, so I got to try on the 38. Um, they had 42 in the gray, um, and then they had a bunch of steels with all different bands. Like They did they did not have a lot of the sport. They they were really pushing mm. the steel, because the steel is looks better with all the bands, right? Sure. Um, so my kind of overall feeling is the sport band feels fantastic. Um, I, I love it. I think it feels way better than I expected, and I'm really happy that that's going to be the main band that, that I'll have at least for the first little while. Um, I I agree. I think the sport band is softer yep. than I expected. The feel on it is really nice and soft, and it feels much more, um, like pliable 
than I expected. It's not, uh, it's, it, it, it sort of moves easily, which I also, you know, it's not what I thought. So it was, yeah, it was, it felt much more comfortable and pleasant to wear than I thought it would. Uh, I think the leather loop is the biggest disappointment. Yeah. And for me, it's mainly in the feel of it was fine. That didn't bother me. But it's the mechanism for putting it on. So, you know, you've got, so I'll explain it. You can go see it. But, you know, you have like the little ridges, which are all the individual magnets, right? To to try and wrap that around itself, you have to put it through this hole, which has a metal ring around the outside. So you're kind of like forcing it through. Like, you have to, like, force each individual magnet through the hole. It's really not a very elegant way of doing it. And considering you definitely will be taking this watch off at least once a day, <laughs> all right, and putting it on again in the morning, yeah. I don't want a mechanism like that. Like, the sport was perfectly fine. Like, you just wrap it around, clip it in, slide it in. And I feel like over time, that will get so easy to, to just do that to do that action. Because I tried it on a, and took it off a couple of times, uh, so this is interesting. I've seen some people differently. The guy let me take, pick up the watches, put them on myself, take them off myself. I could do whatever I wanted with them. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to put them on myself. Yeah, so I, I don't know. This is so interesting how different people have different things. But I was able to pick them up. Like he was helping me because I was like, "Can you hold them?" Because I was scared I was going to drop it. Right. So I was like, "Can you just put your hand on the back?" He's like, "Sure." What do you like? You know, it's like you can do whatever you want with it. I really like they they clean down all of the watches of a cloth as well before before you put them on. Which I really liked, but yes. yeah, the, the leather loop I I don't like. Uh, the Milanese I don't know how to say it. I try and say it yeah. like I imagine Federico would say it. Um, yeah. That was my favorite. Oh my word, that feels fantastic. Interesting. That I loved the feeling of it. Um, Federico said this, and I totally agree. It feels more like fabric. Uh, mm. And I also so. I have my try-on appointment, and I'm kind of skipping ahead now, but then uh, I saw a, a guy that I've seen a couple of times in the Apple Store who's a listener of this show and some of our shows on Relay, and we were chatting. And I said to him uh, that I would really like to, to see what the sport looked like with the Milanese, because uh, you're not allowed to change the bands, but he then took me over and we changed the bands over. <laughs> <laughs> so I have some other photos, which caused the whole big problem. I'll put links to this in the show notes. So what I did, I took a couple of sh- uh, close-up shots uh, with the Milanese, with the Sport, so you, and I tried to show the different connections, because on the face of it, it's kind of like a brushed steel, so it fits quite well with the aluminium, uh, but then on the side is the polished. So it's up to you if you like it. There's four pictures. The last one, I just want to let you know if you look at it, is my girlfriend's wrist. It's not my wrist. So I I caused so many problems for people with these pictures because I took three on my wrist and then one on hers, and she has tiny, tiny wrists. So like, she's got even the 38 is big on her, uh, but people were like saying, oh, the watch looks so large on your wrist. No, the fourth picture is my girlfriend. So bear that in mind. But I really liked the way that those actually looked together. Um, so the trium was really good. I I spent it felt like as long as I wanted. I, I don't think that's the case, but I didn't feel rushed. Uh, it was kind of like okay, we're, I'm done looking now. I liked the way the steel uh, link bracelet looked. Uh, I like how it looked. I didn't like how it looked on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see it, like Joshua Topolsky in his review. It looked really great on his wrist, but yeah. I just don't think it looked good on my wrist. Yeah, but he's he can yeah he carries off some different kind of fashion than 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 I do certainly and yeah. and I, I I've never liked the metal link bracelets but having hairy arms especially it's like they always pinch and stuff and I didn't like it I totally see what you're saying about the Milanese loop with um with uh 
wanting it to because that's metal um you the i've been looking at leather bands so i i've not been concerned about the mismatch with the body but that is a, a case where you really you've got a metal band and you want it to match the body at that point you, that's a lot of silver <laughs> that's whereas black leather doesn't match the band the uh the the watch body anyway so it's not as big a deal so yeah. i totally i totally see what you're what you're saying there so because I, I always have my eye on the Malaysia loop, um, I'm happy that it went well with the sport. I I haven't put an order. I'm going to get that band, but I'm not putting an order in because it's backdated till June online, and I'm yeah. hoping that before June you'll be able to get one in a store. Huh? Yeah, I so what I did was I tried on the sport band, and I liked it. Uh, and I, I and I I actually had the black sport band with the with the space gray sport, which is what I had ordered the night before, and I thought to myself well, you know, let's see if I don't like this, then I can, I can change my order. And I, I wore that for a couple of minutes and it was super comfortable. I re- I really thought it was comfortable and I was concerned about whether this watch was going to feel weird and what, what, what am I getting myself into? And, um, after a minute or two, I, I was looking at it and thinking, I'm really happy with my purchase because this, this actually feels good. I like the look. Um, I like how it feels. It feels really light. I, I'm not even, I, I do wear a watch regularly. Um, but I, I worry, you know, with a new watch, am I going to feel like, Oh no, this is too much, but it didn't feel like it was too much. It felt perfectly normal. It didn't look huge to me on my wrist. It felt comfortable. Then I took the sport band off, and what happened is what happened when I got the Pebble for the first time, and it came with a rubber band, a cheap, crappy rubber band, not the nice rubber band, fluoroelastomer, fluoroelastomer, say it with me, fluoroelastomer um, band that the Apple Watch did. But it had the same effect, which is when I took it off, I immediately could feel the dampness of the sweat that my, that my wrist had been exuding under the band that had nowhere to go because the band is not absorbent. And it's icky, and I don't like that feeling. And I and I immediately thought to myself, uh, let's try the leather uh, classic buckle and, and see what that looks like. And I put that on, and I, the leather classic buckle is essentially every watch band I've had since I stopped having a Casio calculator watch in high school. Um, and uh, I really like the that... I like that that band style. I I've always I I swapped out my Pebble band for a leather classic buckle band, um, and uh, I really like the classic bu- buckle that Apple did. It's very high quality. Um, I like that the little uh, pins are flat and that the perforations in the leather are um, are rectangular and not just little circles, which means there's more room for the force to be, be spread. So they should actually last longer. Um, and I thought that the leather feel was really nice on that. And so, uh, when I, the net result is when I went home, all I did was place an order for the black, uh, leather classic buckle <laughs> because I want one of those too. And I'll replace my sport band for at least for most purposes. Um, Uh, And people, you know, people talk about, well, yeah, you know, you sweat into the leather band and it absorbs your sweat and all that. And it's like, that's the beauty for me of leather is that it will, it'll breathe a little bit. It'll absorb a little moisture and then it'll release it later. And yeah, does that mean over time that band is going to age? And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it is. And I kind of like that. That's one of the nice things about leather. And yeah, at some point it'll fall apart and that's fine too, but I'm not going to wear it swimming or anything like that, but it will be more comfortable. So that's what I'm going for. I, I agree with that. Like, I can imagine that I wouldn't want to wear, and I don't necessarily want to wear the sport band all the time, uh, but just my band option is just like, I'm, I'm not, June seems like a crazy thing to, to put an order in yeah. for. Like, I'm I'm convinced I could buy one before then. 
Well, I mean, all these dates that everybody's getting for these ship dates here, I, I am skeptical. I think that Apple's going to beat those dates uh, for a lot of this stuff. I, I, I think Apple's being conservative. That's my guess. Also, they're showing date ranges, which I think is kind of funny. Um, you know, there's maybe a lack of confidence over exactly how many they're going to be able to produce. But um, I'm optimistic that maybe we'll all get stuff a little earlier than we think we will. I hope so. But I still put in the I still put in the order for that band, and if if that band, my my feeling is it's going to be like when I got the 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 cover for the iPad two or whatever the iPad Mini, where I got the cover and I had to wait like another week before I got the iPad. I had the cover for nothing. I, I feel like that's going to happen probably. I'm going to end up with a band. <laughs> And be like, I can imagine there's a watch attached to it. I make my own little watch out of sticks. And Genuinely, yeah. that's why I didn't order a, a band at <laughs> checkout. Like when I originally bought a watch, it's like, I'm not going through that again. I had my iPhone 6 Plus case for a week just looking at it. I was like, I'm not, I, no, I, I'm not going to go through this torment. Uh, one of the interesting things in the stores is these. They have so the the watches that you put on in the try on are on a demo loop, um, which is really nice because it shows and kind of goes through everything. And plus, you don't want to be using them at that point. That's how I feel. I think it's the right thing to yeah. do. Actually, you, you, this is about the bands and the feel of the watches, and you can start the demo loop and it can interact. You can look at it when you want to look at it, and it's always doing something. And one of the things that's really interesting is it does all the tactic stuff, so it catches you whilst you're talking to the guy or the girl at the store. So it's like oh like. Like the first time it happened, I was like, whoa, okay, that's crazy. Yeah, and that was nice, and I liked that, and it did like the heartbeat stuff, so that was really cool. But then they have these like devices. My understanding is it's an iPad mini uh, with some other stuff in the guts and these watches that are attached to an acrylic box. And these are like, um, they're like, they're demo units, basically. Uh, and what they do is as you're moving around the interface, the iPad screen on the left is giving you more information about the Apple service that you're currently using, which is really nice. It's a nice little companion. Um, but I you know, I was able to go in and use the watch, and it has the Apple-developed apps, no third-party apps on these. Um, it's going to take a little bit of getting used to because some of the ways that you interact with the UI is not necessarily as I would have expected. Uh, but I think that there are some things that are in here which was giving me the feeling, the joy feeling of a new Apple product. Like, for example, when you're, whatever app is in the center of the screen, you can scroll into from the uh, crown, the digital crown, mm -hmm. and you can start scrolling and the elements of the app start to appear and then you can scroll them away again. So, like, you start scrolling into the watch and, like, the hands appear and, and the dial appears and it all starts to come together, but you can stop it and spin it away. And it's like... And so you can just zoom in and out and watch the interface, like, come in and go away, come in and go away. And it's like that kind of attention is what I love most. And, and I think that there are all these little things that I was coming into contact with whilst using the watch where it was filling me with that joy and excitement. Um, and I've heard contrary from other people, but uh, having used this, I am I am really, really excited to, to play around with this mm. device more because there just seems to be some things in here that are, I just find the details so fantastic. Like the way you can customize the um, 
the watch face is and the way that you change color so like you you go onto one of the customization things and you can change the color of the elements of the watch face by scrolling the digital crown and watching the colors change around mm. like it, it, there are just little parts of it that, that i love and the screen itself and the way that the apps look it they look way better than i expected like the quality yeah. of the screen is way better yeah oh that that screen is beautiful it is an amazing screen and i like the crown um i feel like apple's going to learn from how people use it and how already has probably uh, among the apple employees who've had it like the the best ways of using these things and uh you know i think it's a it's an exciting time because we've got a product that that everybody's got some ideas about how it's going to work but i think in the real world we're going to find some really interesting things out and that apple may adjust what its plans are uh based on that so uh, i think that's exciting too that that we're all going to figure out like, oh, the crown is really good for this, but not that. And <laughs> and I don't use these. I mean, I, I was listening to, God, who was it? One of these many tech podcasts was talking about how maybe the apps, um, maybe maybe apps, it was ATP, uh, Marco was talking about, maybe apps as a concept is like, should be even further in the background. Like, you know, really most of your interactions should be the watch face and the glances and that, that the idea of launching watch apps should be uh, not much of a thing because, uh, you know, maybe that's too complex an interaction for this. And we'll find out. We'll find out how, how many apps people use and how they get to them and whether having an app screen, that honeycomb app screen, is even uh, really necessary as a primary mode of interacting with this thing. We think of it in terms of the iPhone where it's the primary mode. And Apple's already pushed it into the background and sort of said, no, the fit watch face is the primary and then the glances. And then, you know, you can also go find your apps. And it'll be interesting to see it unfold. I, I, one of the things I'm most excited about about getting it is using it for a while. Um, and actually one of the, I, I, I've had a bunch of people say, I can't believe that Apple didn't get you a watch. I mean, you're, you didn't get a review. It's like, well, I was busy with the MacBook and with travel and, you know, it's okay. And in fact, I'm kind of glad because the amount of work that the people who did the the embargoed reviews of the of the uh, watch uh, had to do was, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. I don't, I, I, I thought about it and was exhausted, especially since there's also the MacBook um, that I had to work on last week. Um so I'm looking forward to getting it and spending time with it. And the pressure's kind of off that the, these reviews are out there, right? Um, and so I feel like I can take my time now and use it and then write about what I'm observing about it instead of having this week where you have to intensively use it and take pictures of it and do videos of it and write a whole big package and and have it all laid out and, you know, Verge and Bloomberg kind of fa- fancy ways or not. It, it's it's a lot. And uh uh, I'm kind of glad to be able to take the slow cooked path with the Apple Watch because I feel like it will unfold itself um, in ongoing use in a way that is very hard to replicate if you just have to write a review in a week. And the thing is, like even from a business perspective, there's still so much to write after it comes out. Like so. It, oh yeah. You know that. So for you, it's like yeah, okay, you you didn't get the big whiz bang embargo review, but it's not like you're. I, I would assume you're not really hurting from it because you still have loads of stuff to write that people want to see. But yeah. yeah, 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 and and so being able to do that kind of as an ongoing thing instead of just dropping a big review, I think there's some power in that. Should we take a break? Thank a new sponsor yeah. to upgrade. Unless you, Yay, I, I don't know if you sponsor. want to talk about um anything more about the try on experience or anything like that. No, I I got my I got my part out. I had a very nice um I had a very nice uh person who was uh, Apple and store employee who was showing me stuff. 
Um, and she knew who I was, which is weird. Um, because that's still weird. But uh, she was very she was very nice. However, she seemed to have lost her wipe down rag, <laughs> and so she kept like grabbing other people's at our table because we had like four or six people at this table, and so there were other Apple people there, and they had their rags on the table, and she keep gra- grabbing them. And there was this one guy who was like, "That's mine." She's like, "I just need to borrow it for a second. And he's like, "That's mine," <laughs> and she's like, "I don't have mine." Oh, and she because we got to wipe them down. Obviously, they were told you got to wipe them down every time somebody takes it off. You wipe it down, and then you move on to the next one because we don't want them coming out of the drawer with fingerprints and stuff on them we want them pristine at that point but she had lost her rag somewhere and so uh that was pretty funny <laughs> like when i when i left the store um i definitely felt like i'd experienced something that wasn't an apple store like i feel like it was more akin to a jewelry store or a fashion store it was it was a very and my girlfriend agreed it, it was a very yeah. different feeling experience and they took so much care um it was one of the first times i've ever filled in like i got a feedback survey and i like filled the feedback survey in cuz i was really really impressed mm-hmm. with the overall feeling and my understanding of this is like the the apple store employees in their training were told even how they are to put the watches down on the counter like different watches have to be put down on the counter in different ways. Uh-huh. So that they're really going for the retail thing. Like for example, the the Milanese, you put it down with the face up so they can see all the band, but the link bracelet you put down on its side with the digital crown pointing up because you can't put the, the link bracelet with the face up because it rolls over. Mm. So like they, they were explained like, this is how you have to do this, this is how you have to do this. I, I found that fascinating. Because that makes sense, like from the jewelry store perspective, from the luxury perspective, treat the products with care and show them in a specific way. But yeah, it, it's uh, on one level, it's not like an Apple Store experience, and on another level, it is exactly the kind of thing that that fits in what with what the Apple Store should be doing. I mean, I do think this is the influence of Angela Aarons, who I realized they, they you know they hired her a year and a half ago, although she I think only started about a year ago. But you know, with her experience at Burberry, um, understanding how you you train retail staff in high end retail locations, I think it's I think it's good I, because it fits in right. The whole idea of the Apple Store experience is supposed to be this hands on, personal, um, elegant kind of experience. And I, in fact, most of the complaints I hear about the Apple Store these days are you know the the staff aren't as the staff aren't as well trained. Uh, as they used to be, and it's hard to figure out, hard to flag somebody down, uh, and uh, you know, lots of complaints about how it's, it it feels a little more like a more like a chaotic experience. And um, so, if I'm Angela Arendt, that would be one of the things that I would be concerned about, and I would want to re instill some of this like uh, really personal, well trained kind of stuff, so that when you come out of the Apple Store, you think, "Wow, that was something." And I think the Apple Store used to be like that, and because, partially because of its popularity, it's it's harder for them to get that right now. And I, you know, I think this is an example of of Apple trying to get that experience back into those stores using the watch. And uh, I think I think it's good. It was certainly impressive to me. Um, and that that store at 10 a.m. on a on a what Friday morning, it was it was packed with people around the watches. It was pretty amazing. All right, new sponsor. So this week's episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Warby Parker. As I mentioned at the start of the show, Warby Parker, I love this little line, glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. 
but far often they do, and this is where Warby Parker can help. Warby Parker's prescription glasses start at just $95, and this includes prescription lenses. These aren't just ugly, cheap-looking designs at these prices either. Warby Parker believes glasses should be viewed as a fashion accessory, right? This is what we're talking about today. Just like a bag, a shoe, a necktie, or even a watch. They want you to look good in your glasses, and they do just that. Warby Parker's designs look really great, and it's something you would be happy to wear on your face every day. They also have something that they call a titanium collection. These start at $145 and include prescription lenses, of course, which feed, and they feature Japanese titanium premium stuff and French non-rocking screws, which sounds so fancy. Oh, are, are you, sir, are your screws non-rocking? Why, yes, the yes, fr- of course, I go to Warby Parker. The French don't rock. No, no way. <laughs> no mm-hmm. way. But all of Warby's glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. There's no additional cost. So when you think about those prices, like that $95 and you're getting lenses with all that anti-reflective stuff, anti-glare stuff, it's fantastic. Also, of course, they give you a hard case and cleaning cloth. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a deal like this anywhere else. One of the things that people really love about Warby is what's called the home try-on. This is where you order five pairs of glasses. They'll be shipped to you directly. You can try them on for five days and then you can get some feedback from your family family and friends and stuff like that and send them back for free using their prepaid return shipping label. This gives you the ability to find the glasses that you like the look of and then you're able to order them and you'll have them back in your hands within 10 business days. Now, Mr. Jason Snell, you have actually yes, done sir. a uh, try-on for what we have Yes, I have. How was I that? Have. Uh, it was uh, it was really great. I got uh, got the box and my wife said, there's a box here. What is this? And I said, oh, that's the home try-on. And we, we opened it up and we had like a little try-on party where my wife and my daughter stared at my face as I put on various sunglasses. And then my daughter put them all on herself too because she wanted to look cool. Uh, much cooler than her father, and uh, and so that was fun, and we we got to have our uh, opinions about. Well, I like that one. I don't like that one, and we kind of cycled through all of them a few times, and uh, that's good because whenever I have gone in the past to buy a pair of glasses at the at like my optometrist's office, I I have those moments of of thinking I have no way of judging whether this looks good or not, and I started doing things like uh, texting my wife pictures of me wearing various glasses and saying, "What do you think about this?" and then she's judging it from like one angle um and so this was great because i could keep them on as long as they wanted to observe them and they could say put that one back on again and let's compare these two now and all of that uh that all went into the home try on and uh, that was good and then we we settled on a on a pair and i uh, went uh you know told warby parker what i wanted and uh yes and then very quickly thereafter i had a nice pair of uh of uh, prescription sunglasses and they worked with my optometrist to get my prescription. It was all handled. I didn't really have to do anything other than give my, my uh, optometrist information. They contacted them and got the, and they got the info and the whole thing. Yeah. It was really, uh, really great. So cool. Warby Parker, man. Awesome. If you want to look cool like Jason Snell, go to (laughs) Warby Parker. (laughs) Even cooler. That's W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R.com slash upgrade. You'll get to choose your five free home try-on frames there and send the frames back. Choose your favorite pair and order. And if if you order through that URL, warbyparker.com slash upgrade, you'll get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and free shipping all around and you'll be also contributing to a charitable cause the last thing i'll mention as for every pair of glasses sold warby parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need thanks so much to warby parker for supporting this show go to warbyparker.com upgrade so what else did you want to talk about today sir 
Uh, well, I wanted to talk at least briefly about, we mentioned uh, those reviews, and uh, I think that's interesting that we got those reviews. This whole rollout is fascinating to me for the Apple Watch. So now we're, now we're instead of product, we're talking about sort of like Apple strategy stuff. So um, they, they, uh, they do the pre-order two weeks before the, they're going to start shipping. There is, uh, just a couple of days before the pre-order, there are all the Margo reviews drop. And the idea there is just, I think, to keep the watch in the public consciousness. Um, also, an interesting either confidence that the reviews were going to be good or kind of an understanding that the reviews didn't matter what they said as much as it it mattered that they were all being published and so it's free advertising for Apple. But those all dropped before the pre-order period. And then about a week before that, or even less, there was this, uh, David Pierce did a story in Wired that was like how they did it, where he talked to a few people at Apple who were obviously furnished, you know, Apple furnished him some people for some interviews about some parts of the watch development process, which uh, is a different kind of story we don't usually see Apple do. Uh, Google has been doing that a lot with Stephen Levy, where they give him access and let him write these stories about how Google thought up this whatever thing. But Apple hasn't done a lot of that. And this is one of those cases where Apple's strategy is, 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 it is not the same as when Katie Cotton was there. Um, this is whether how much of it is Katie not being there, how much of it is, is, is it's Tim and, and uh, he's uh, telling this from the top, like, let's play this game differently. But this is a very different kind of game. And it, it is is, I guess, the essentially a full court press. But it's fascinating that they're, you know, in the Steve Jobs era, Apple was this black box and then magic product, products emerged from it. And then Tim Cook era, they are, um, and it's to Apple's, this is all to, it's PR. It's all to Apple's benefit. But they are painting a picture of Apple as this amazing company with all these great people who collaborate on these great products. And some of that is to combat the feeling that it was all from Steve Jobs, which Steve Jobs really liked. Like the Isaacson book makes clear that Steve Jobs really liked, and, and, and becoming Steve Jobs says it too, he really liked the, the idea that everybody thought that he invented everything. Like that was part of what he was doing. And when, when James Thompson does his, um, does his uh, presentation at Ool and talks about trying to get into the about box and the finder. And he gets in just at the point where Apple decrees, Steve Jobs decrees that all names all will be taken out of the credits of all Apple software. I mean, they say that was for, uh, to keep them off the lists uh, in terms of being poached by other companies. And I'm sure that was part of it, but part of it is the mystique of it all magically happening from Apple and who knows how it gets made. It's just magic software that happens from elves somewhere. Um, and so this is different, right? This is Apple saying, we're going to furnish you with these guys who worked on the watch team. And you're going to get to talk to all of them about what they went through and the process involved. And it's still PR, right? It's it's just a different approach approach. It's a different kind of story. Here they're saying, look how smart we are. Look how talented our people are that they do this stuff. Not everybody can do this. This is an Apple. You know, only Apple has this level of attention to detail, as opposed to the old way, which was like, uh, you know, I don't know how they do it. The, the magic product comes out of Apple. So different. I just thought the David Pierce story, especially, that's like, that is not the old Apple at all. That is a very new approach. Um, and as, a, as somebody who is a writer, I look at it too, and I think, you know, it's hard to, well, it, so if you're David Pierce, uh, you know, who's a good writer um, and you're wired, it's hard to turn down that story. You got to do that story. And at, at, yet at the same time, everything in that story is furnished by Apple. So it's a real challenge because it is it is a piece of PR on one level, and he's got to put his own spin on it and his own take on it because that and getting the access. I mean, Apple willing to talk about its product process for a new product that's coming out. I mean, that's a, that's that is big un, in you know 
unto itself, that is a huge deal. But at the same time, they are choosing exactly who you could talk to and exactly what information that they're willing to talk about. So it's a, you know, it's a tricky thing. But um, I, I love that we're getting a little bit of an insight into it, regardless of the fact that it is, you know, targeted to promote the Apple Watch. I love that we got a little bit of the insight. Those stories in that story about like, you know, what, what's their motivation and what, what are they trying to do with the product are really interesting. So I think it's worth a read. I think it's a nice story. Um, but it's also interesting just to think about how that is a fascinatingly different kind of p- bit of PR than what Apple has done before. Man, did Pierce luck out on that? Like, it's maybe his first big piece since he joined Wired? Yeah, like because he was at The Verge before. Yeah. I've always really, really liked his stuff. Oh, his yeah, he's, he's great. I, I, I hope that he continues to do product reviews for Wired because they were always my favorite thing about The Verge. Um, there was something interesting. I, I watched Joshua Topolsky's video um, mm-hmm. and realized that I miss him. <laughs> I I I talked to him for a little while at the Apple Watch or at the at the latest event, the Apple Watch and MacBook event. Um and yeah, you know, he's got that. I mean, he's got a he's got a new baby and all of that, but it's like he's been doing management stuff at yeah. Bloomberg setting this all thing up and it was nice to it was nice to get him back in the field a little bit. Even at the Verge, you know, he was the you know, he was the editor in chief and that meant that he, he you know, a lot of his time had to be spent on management. I know the feeling, right? Yep. And so it was nice to it was nice to see him um lend his experience covering tech products to that to that story. I thought that was good. And I thought that was great actually that he that he got the Apple Watch because I think that was a question of like what Apple's relationship with The Verge was always kind of like, well, you know, it was it was uh it was a little rocky at times and not only did um, you know, not only did The Verge get one, but Joshua Topolsky got one at Bloomberg too, and I thought that was uh, I thought that was cool cool to see because he's got a he, you know he 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 is not well known for nothing he he is he he is well known for some really good reasons that you may lose sight of when he becomes like the you know the figurehead of The Verge or Bloomberg. Uh, I feel like The Verge is like for Apple a kind of have to. I yeah, like I think this. I, I, I think that's exactly right, and I, I think. I think this is another PR difference, which is old Apple PR would be like, well, we're going to punish them. And new Apple PR is like, they can say whatever they want. We just need to be there. Yeah. Because honestly, you've also got, if you're Apple, you've got to have confidence. This is, this, this happens so much with internet things too. It's, I cannot believe that this person who is famous is so thin skinned about criticism because surely they get it all the time. How could they not have grown calluses and realized that people are going to criticize them and they just need to move on? Surely they've and, and like like super famous people that you find like wow how, how can you not be good at this at this point? I think I I think Apple was kind of like that too, where it was like you know Apple I think you're bigger than any of these media outlets that you're dealing with. Just let them you know just I mean sure if if there's somebody who you feel like is not. Uh, you can't deal with them fairly. That's that's a different thing. But you know, if you give them access, they're going to take it, and you know that they've got a huge following. So just let them say what they're going to say. And in the end, I think um, somebody was making this point: like all reviews are good reviews because it's all press. And do people really read the reviews as buying advice, or do they re- read them as entertainment? I think it's a good question. Um, so I, you know, I, I think it's a good change in Apple's policy to be like, yeah, The Verge is The Verge is big. The Verge is one of the definitive uh, tech uh, sites, if not the definitive tech site on the internet. We'll let them have it, and 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 also saying, you know, they're going to say what they're going to say, and that's and that you know, and it doesn't, it's fine. 
<laughs> I mean, it li- like literally, it's fine. Just let them review it. Um, so that's a different that's a different approach, but I think it's good. So just mention one thing: Joshua Topolsky has a new podcast launching. I think this week called Tomorrow. Yeah, um, and I actually don't think it's affiliated with Bloomberg. Hmm. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, he talked about that briefly when I when I ran into him. I, I, I he said something about maybe having me on sometime. So so uh, maybe that'll happen because, because yeah, I'm everywhere he's talking about it. It's just tomorrowpodcast.com. There's no Bloomberg logos nowhere. I hope that that's the case, uh, and I wonder if that might have been a thing for him with Vox because I, I he's been mentioning doing a podcast of his own for a long time. Yeah, and I wonder if he was like, you know, I want to do this thing, and they're like, no, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I know I, again, I know the feeling. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and and I and also, if Bloomberg's not interested in doing that, which is which would be interesting in the sense that, um, it'd be silly it, for them. <laughs> it's a it's a question. Well, yeah, I mean, when they're covering all the, the rise of all these different podcast things, would would they not want to do that? And I don't know the details of their policies and and his, Joshua Topolsky's employment contract and all of those things. But it would be interesting if Joshua Topolsky was allowed to launch his own podcast venture on the side. Then again, Bloomberg's a very kind of like uh, uh, you know pro business, right? It's a business thing. So maybe they're like, yeah, if you want to create your own business on the side, you know, that's totally separate from what you're doing at Bloomberg, then go ahead. But I just don't know if you can report on, this is always was always the challenge. It's like, if we're paying you to be a tech expert, and then you're going off on the side and creating a whole other business where you're a tech expert, are we really getting all of your tech expertise, or are you giving us a little tiny bit? But, you know, regardless of whether it's just, just Josh's thing on his own, or whether it's with Bloomberg, or whether it's just part of Bloomberg, I don't know. But yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing it. More podcasts are, that's a good thing. Yep, none of the metadata has Bloomberg mentioned anywhere, and in the show description says that he's talking about technology, culture, internet. So yeah, I'm excited about it because I, I've always really, really liked that guy. Like, I, I really look up to him. I think he's amazing. I, I, I yeah, don't know that a guy. lot of people don't like him or whatever, but I have always thought he was incredible. Like. But. Yeah, I I don't know him personally. I've had some nice conversations with him at, at these Apple events. He's always taken time to chat with me at these Apple events, which I got to say, not everybody does. And uh, and and so I've always appreciated that. Him and Neelay both. I, I I've I've spent time talking to them, and I really appreciate that. I I don't I don't know them personally beyond that, but um but I've always appreciated that they've they've, that they've had the time to chat, and they've been you know pleasurable to chat with them. And their work is good. I'm, you know, I'm happy. Like Neil, Neil's story. I've heard a lot of people say that they they didn't read it because it was in that crazy layout. I read it in Instapaper. I thought it was really great. I thought it was a good story. I think he did a good job. <laughs> you know, I think it's distracting maybe the layout, but I think he did a good job. And 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 uh, Topolsky, same way. You know, he he's a he's a pro. We spoke about this on Connected, but I think I think Neil had some fundamental problems with the way that he was approaching the notification problem, or what he perceived as a notification problem. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying I endorse this review, but I thought it was no. a good read, and I, I get his take on it. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, I laughed. A lot of the reviews are like, "Turns out, keeping staring at your watch uh, while you're having a conversation with somebody uh, when you keep checking your watch, it's kind of rude." It's like, yes, <laughs> this is true. Um, but like, but, what, uh, what I liked about Topolsky's <laughs> review is he was kind of like, "But you get to a point where you." pair them down like he said i got to the point where i paired the, my notifications yes. down so i wasn't looking that often it's like that was the obvious conclusion that neil yeah, ne- didn't Neelay, address neil was like like uh every time i get an email i get a i get a notification about it it's like dude 
don't do that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> and now I miss the important people in my life. It's like I don't even know how you've jumped there. Like, yeah, you you need to. I think actually speaking as an editorial person, right? One of the great opportunities. I'm sure Renee Ritchie has already written thirty stories about this. <laughs> one of the great opportunities with the Apple Watch because that's what they do. And I'm more they write thirty stories about it. Uh, they are so productive. Um, managing your notifications in Notification Center and how noti- what notifications get sent to the watch and choosing strategies for choosing what notifications are, are... It's really easy to just ignore that and just say no to everything or yes to everything and just deal with it. With the Apple Watch, it becomes even more important that you make some decisions about exactly what you want to see uh, and be notified by because that's the difference. Like Neelay's story is influenced by the fact that he has got everything pushing a notification to him, and that's too many things. Yep. So we'll see. Thirty stories on iMore, just just written by Renee Ritchie, all by himself. Amazing. I'm trying. I'm trying to find one. I know there's going to be one. I just haven't found yeah. it yet. Well, I mean, there have been in the past about notification centers. Like this is adding a whole other layer. I dealt with this a little bit with the Pebble, where because the Pebble was taking every notification from my lock screen, and there was too many. And so you know yep. you have to pare it down. You use if you're using Apple Mail, you use the VIP feature, so you only get notified notified by certain people sending you email instead of everybody. Um, and you know you you have to set some limits about what you're going to see. But like the difference um, between the Pebble and the Apple Watch is you can keep notifications on your phone and turn them off on the watch. Like that's even better. Yeah. You know, because you can, you can stop, you can turn them off in the, in the companion app. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is going to be part of the strategy for everybody is when do you want to be also, also it's personal. Um, it's like self-control. <laughs> like you feel that tap on your wrist, you know, something's going on. You can just note to yourself, oh, something's going on. And then when there's a natural time, say, now I'll check and see what's going on. It doesn't have to be, oh, tap on the wrist. I must look right now. Right. And, that, and that's about like personal development. So uh. there are like, I'm saying all this before I even own a watch, but I can foresee some things already. I hope that Apple continues to push for even more granular control, even though it does add a lot of, you know, additional things because what i would really like is like say for example uh iMessage right if somebody's sending me a bunch of iMessages i don't need to be notified about every one does that make sense so like if say you're sending me like like the people you know the way that they they use instant message you send like i know that i do this i send like six iMessages in a row or whatever as I'm talking to somebody. You don't need to tell me about all of them. You know, I'd like to see stuff like that. It's like, you know, notify me once and then yeah. give it a five minute break or but anyway, this is getting into something we don't need to no, get into now. No, but you're but you're right. There is um I think the next frontier for Apple, maybe it's an iOS nine thing, is really overhauling notification center to provide much better control over what goes where, including the watch. And um because I feel like notification center is kind of overwhelmed right now. And it was a good first attempt at notification management, but uh, I think it needs a rethink. So I'm hoping that might be an iOS 9 thing spurred on by the Apple Watch to do a better job of letting us have more granular control over what we see where and when. That would make a bigger feature on stage as well by saying, and now because of the Apple Watch, right, than if they would have just done it already. Does that make sense? Because now there's like more of a reason to do it that will make Uh, you happy that it's done. uh, 
I think there are a lot of things that Apple does where where they know that it's something they should do at some point, and then the prioritization becomes: Do I have a reason that I need to do this now? Yep. And the Apple Watch, I think, gives gives Apple a reason to prioritize certain features. This is what I was saying about like the pen stuff on the iPad and other iPad feature innovations, like uh, things that are not just big iPhone parts of the iPad. Like if they do a big iPad Pro, that might be the reason to do a whole raft of iPad features. It's like, well, now we've got a reason to do it because we're going to tie it to this product and i think notification center and the watch may be that same that same thing where like this is the impetus to do the you know this overhaul because now we now we now there's enough there that we really need to do it should we do some ask upgrade yeah let's do it uh jason snell who is providing who is uh helping support ask upgrade this week ask upgrade is brought to brought to you by our friends at mail route mail route Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. This is a world you can live in. MailRoute has been filtering the bad stuff out of my email for more than, for, it's like, I think coming up on two years now. Uh, here's how it works. It lives in the cloud. You don't have to install any hardware or software. Uh, it's a it's a cloud service. So you have to do something uh, which is called uh, editing your MX record, which is for each domain, there's a thing called the MX record, which is basically saying what server receives email for this domain. And you set that to MailRoute. So instead of it going to your mail server, all the mail that you receive, all the inbound mail goes to MailRoute. So all, all the mail, including the good stuff, but all the junk comes to MailRoute servers. MailRoute takes it in. MailRoute deals with it. Uses its intelligence software to figure out whether it's good or not. If it's good, it passes it on to your mail server. If it's bad, it never gets to your mail server. It's held in this quarantine. It's like that, like the big uh, trap in Ghostbusters. Have you seen Ghostbusters, Mike? Did it? Yes. I okay, have, good. I have, definitely. Don't worry. Uh, uh, so so uh, that's where they, they keep the ghosts. Well, they keep the spam in there. And uh, and, and the, the good stuff comes to you. And they can send you a, a note every day or every week saying, here's the stuff we filtered out. And you can click to quickly deliver it if they did misfilter something, which very rarely happens, but it happens occasionally. And you can set up whitelists. So, you know, always let things through from these people or from these domains. And they see so much junk that they have a really good system for understanding understanding what the spam is and uh, identifying it before it can even reach you. Um, So as a desktop user, couldn't be easier. If you are an email administrator or IT professional, they've got the tools that you and your your supervisors are going to demand, like an API for account management, support for LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, Outbound Relay, and everybody's favorite, mailbagging. <laughs> uh, uh, we can't high five it in person anymore, sadly. Uh, and uh, so, again, risk-free trial is the thing that y- you you can test this out without putting down a credit card. Uh, so you sign up, you change the MX records, and that's it. Your mailbox and hardware, your mail server, all completely protected. It's simple, effective. There's no reason not to try it. You can always switch out and switch your MX record back if you decide you don't want it. Um, and we also have a great deal. All upgrade listeners will get 10% off, not for a month, not for a year, but for the lifetime of your account with MailRoute by going to mailroute.net slash upgrade. So go there now, 10% off for the lifetime of your account. And thank you to MailRoute for keeping my inbox clean and for sponsoring Ask Upgrade. Mail route like the Ghostbusters, but for your email. But yeah, that's right. They're that's, spam that's, busters. That can, who spam you gonna bust. call? Mail route. I uh, no no Mike, what you gonna do? Mail, mail bagging. bagging. <laughs> There's something I, there. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. We need to call Lex. 
<laughs> he yeah. can he can write some lyrics for, yeah. uh, for us, and this is how we. Do oh this. no! Don't don't even you know that's that's going to happen now. There, yeah. Suddenly, people are going to come back, and there's going to be a Ghostbusters like song, and then we're going to have to pay Huey Lewis and Ray Parker Jr. royalties. Oh yeah, <sighs> it's not like not like White Christmas. All right, no, not at all. That's totally royalty free. Ask Upgrade. Uh, do you have uh, some questions for me? Oh, you bet I do. Uh, this comes from Upgrade and <laughs> Will. Do you think Apple will update the Magic Mouse for Force Touch? Would this be the opportunity to change its physical shape? This is this is blew blew my mind. I am not so Mike. Are you a mouse or a trackpad person? Uh, I am a mouse person. I prefer trackpads, but I have to use a mouse because otherwise my hands and wrist hurt. Uh, do you have a Magic Mouse? Uh, I do indeed, because I uh, use all the spaces and mission control. So let let me ask you then. Can you conceive of how force touch would work? Like, I guess it would sure. just it it would just sit on the table and you'd press it and press it harder. Yeah, would that, be- would that work for you? Because I already click. Like, I've I've always thought it would be interesting to just, and I've never understood why you can't just tap the magic mouse. Like, why oh, do you yeah. have to click? Because it has stuff in it. It has some sensors in it already, anyway. Right, right for the scrolling and stuff. Yeah, so I've always wondered why can't I just tap with it? Because then I could, then because I have to use the trackpad whilst recording, so you don't hear like. I don't know if you could hear that, but lots click, of clicking. Click, click, click. Um, so I've always wanted that. And yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. You could just press harder. But the thing is, see, that's the thing. If you press harder, it would have to overhaul the entire mouse so it didn't have a physical click anymore. It yeah. would have to be like with false touch. So, But yeah, you could totally do it. You could do it in this current shape, I reckon. Yeah, but- I, I, uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see. I think the question is, does Apple believe that there is much of a market left for the mouse, or do they love the trackpad so much that they want everybody to use it? I, I feel like it's almost certain that there will be a force touch magic trackpad. But um, oh, definitely. About, uh, yeah, but about the mouse, it's an interesting idea. I hope so, because um, then it would be yeah. I, I would have a mouse that doesn't make a physical clicking sound, which is like for a podcaster, <laughs> yeah, that's that like would be the good. heavenly product. <laughs> All right, that's good to that's good to know. I I had some people ask me if the Force Touch trackpad made made any noise, and I and and there was somebody on on somewhere maybe it was in the chat room said no it doesn't, and I had to say well actually it does it does make a noise because the vibration causes this I mean it sounds like a click, <laughs> it does make a little noise if you're in a quiet space okay. and you click you hear it go, you can hear it it's very quiet. Um, but uh, I think I think that uh, this is a good idea. Will Will Apple do it? Upgrading Will? I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting opportunity, and I do think Apple wants Force Touch to be everywhere. So why not? So when I when I was having when I started having wrist pains, I bought a Logitech MX mouse. Feels fantastic. Uh-huh. It's one of those really great ergonomically sculpted ones with loads of different buttons on it. Uh, but I can't use it on the MacBook Pro because I need to be able to use. Uh, like swiping between desktops and stuff because it's just the way oh, that yeah. I work. Um, so I use that with with the editing, but I wish I could use that mouse. Basically, I ah. really love the Logitech mouse, but yeah, I used a, me. Uh, I used a Kensington Trackball for many many years, but now I use uh, the Magic Trackpad. Yep. I've I've come a- across to the Magic Trackpad. I do like the Magic Trackpad. Yeah. Well, the Magic Trackpad and the Logitech mouse make my two handed editing system. That makes yeah. people's minds bend a little bit, but <laughs> no, that's good. I I know there are multiple people who have both and use them for different things. They use the swipes and stuff on the trackpad, and then they do all their precision mousing with a mouse. Yep. Oh I just, man. As a trackball person, switching to the trackpad was pretty easy, especially since I was already using it on my laptop. 
I was totally used to it. So I, I switched and I, I don't miss it. Uh, of Gradient, David, how does the how does Photos.app handle video from your iPhone camera roll? Uh, it imports it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't expect. know. I don't know what. I, yeah, I don't know what more to say. It, it imports it. They're not like video tools in um, in photos per se, other than like I think if it's a slow mo, they'll give you the slow mo handles and stuff. So it doesn't. I fo- Photos app is weird in that it it it. it handles video but it doesn't really know what to do with video um and i don't know what they're going to do about that i i i assume there'll be linkages with imovie at some point that are better than what what's there now but right now your videos are in there but they kind of don't do anything but they are in there and then you can always export them out to other places so talking about photos i think i mentioned this earlier but we're going to have you on uh connected this week um ah, yes forward photos. promote for the network, mm-hmm. I will be on with the lads of Connected later later this week. It'll yep. be exciting because that is that's I, I w- the photo management show. I'll, I'll find I'll finally be on uh, a podcast with Federico. Oh wait, oh. <laughs> I already well, had Federico on. <laughs> well, you can be on a podcast with Federico where I don't have a mild heart attack. Yeah, that, that'll be nice. No, I love that. I love that show, and uh, you know I've been listening to you guys since the prompt days. So uh, that'll be fun to talk about photo management. That's. Uh, that's uh, that's going to be fun. Since I'm writing a book about photos, I am spending a lot of time thinking about photos.app. Indeed. Um, Nick has asked, can you give an estimate of the key travel on the new MacBook? Seems to be 1.5 millimeters on my wired Apple keyboard. Yeah, my, the, so key travel is the amount of distance you can depress a key before you land at the bottom. And uh, I don't know exactly what the key travel is, but it, it's it's more in the half a millimeter, I think, than the one and a half millimeters. So it's it's dramatically reduced. I would say it's a half to a third of the key travel of the uh, stock Apple keyboards. It's a lot less. Johnny has asked, your cut-up podcast radio idea has actually been done pretty well by PRX. You should check out Remix. Yeah, so Public Radio Exchange, which is um, which is one of the uh, public radio distributors in the U.S., has a bunch of uh, of these narrative shows that have like little story blocks, and they have done this interesting thing where they've created Remix, which is I was talking about how it wouldn't it be great if somebody came up with this idea where there were short segments uh, from a bunch of different podcasts, and then you could mix them together based on people's interest and all of that. But you would have to have short shuffling through a bunch of two hour podcasts doesn't help because you're only getting a shuffle every two hours. Um, and so apparently I, I looked at this briefly. Remix is a, is, is uh, from, from PRX and they have taken those, uh, those shorter segments from their various shows and put them kind of in this remix format, which is very clever uh, uh, because you've got to own the material. You've got to have material that's easily cut up into small things. And then you have to build this, you know, a way to remix it. And uh, PRX did it. So that's interesting. And I will check it out further. But, um, you know, that that is a it's a smart idea, but you've got to have the material for it. You know, you've got to have the the short the short blocks and then be able to mix them together. This comes from uh, Rajiv. Rajiv has asked, what is the difference between the watch apps that will be coming out on the 24th and true third party apps? Good question. 
Yeah, great question. So the watch apps that are coming out on the 24th uh, using WatchKit, the idea there is that essentially it's all embedded in the iPhone app. And the iPhone app is running and projecting things to the watch. So when you do something on a, on a watch app, that the, the stuff that's going to be out at launch, what's really happening is all the work is happening on your iPhone. And the iPhone is sending back, quite literally sending back images to, to display on the watch. So um, it's not really running on the watch. It's uh, this proxy for back, you know, phoning home from your, from, literally from your phone. Um, the what Apple has said, and we're hoping that we'll get a lot more about this at WWDC, is that by the end of the year, developers will be able to write apps that actually run on the watch. And I think that's understandable. That this they're trying to give a better solution than the old iPhone solution of uh, sweet solution that you write web apps by giving it this sort of like proxy app thing. Uh, while they build the while they build the product and they learn what goes into writing a native watch app themselves, and then they pass that on in a bundled up way to developers. So by the end of the year, hopefully developers will have the tools to write native watch apps. Um, but that's not going to be the case in the short term. In the short term, you get these things that are like projected things from your phone, which is better than nothing. But um, it's not you know it's not running on the watch it, like the Apple stuff is. And then we have uh, from Shalini, uh, is there a podcast streaming platform that allows streaming only to selected listeners, not broadcasting to the public? Uh, I don't know of any. Yeah, people have tried this with the subscription only thing. And it turns out that I think largely, um, because most podcast things don't support authentication, most podcast apps, that there's a lot of security through obscurity. Just, you know, saying, look, don't pass this around. Here's the secret URL. Everybody can actually get there, but they just keep it in secret. Um, Libsyn, which serves a lot of, uh, it's like a CDN for podcasts, a content delivery network. In fact, Relay uses it. Um, Libsyn has this thing that um, some podcasts, like Mark Marin, is using it, where um, they wall off old episodes and you can only listen to them through their app. And so you have to pay and then you get access through the app to old episodes. Uh, but that's a essentially it's a proprietary thing where they've built the the listing app and the authentication in so that you can go back and listen to the old episodes. So you know, not premium podcasting. There's a reason that premium podcasting is not a is not a thing. It's just you know that technically it hasn't been there, and there's nobody. And and now it's a challenge because there's no commonly agreed upon way to make it work. So the podcast apps don't support it. So something could emerge at some point. Um, but right now it hasn't. And, uh, you know, right down to the fact that on iTunes, you know, they're all free. They all just say free, you know, subscribe. Uh, so maybe, maybe one day that'll happen, but it's going to be tough because there's no, uh, central podcast authority that's going to declare a new format. And if you did declare it, you'd need all the podcast apps to be on board or you're cutting yourself off from a bunch of listeners. Right, Mike? Yeah. And you don't want to do that. I, yeah. I have no desire from really cutting people off. I think that maybe uh, Shanini might have been talking about live streaming. That was how I read it anyway. Oh, interesting. No. No, I mean, I, I think it's the same thing, is that you'd log in and then you'd, you'd have a, you could have HTTP authentication for something like that. Um, a lot, with a that lot of these work. things, it's just like the mess and difficulty just make me not want to do anything like that. Yeah, I, I, I think, like, I've, I've thought about what if I do a... Uh, like a support thing for the incomparable. And I've, I've, I know what I could do 
for for people who supported me as a like a, as a thank you would be a couple of streams of stuff that is not you know not the regular stuff um and when i think about trying to secure that in some way i just think forget it i'm 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 just going to make it obscure and remind people that they shouldn't share it and probably put something in the stream that says hey you got this because you donated and if you haven't donated you really should because that's why you know that, that's what this is for <laughs> um but beyond that i, I yeah I, it's it's so much complication that I think for most people it's not worth doing. I mean, sure, you could build your own infrastructure and have logins and have it not broadcast to the public. You could do that, but it's just a lot of effort to do that for live streams and things like that. Right, so that comes to the end of Ask Upgrade for this week. So we're going to go into our extra special segment where uh, I have watched a movie. But before we do that, Mike watches a movie. This time is brought to you by our friends over at Smile Software. And today I want to tell you about PDF Pen Scan. Plus, it is the app for mobile scanning and OCR. PDF Pen Scan Plus allows you to scan documents using OCR directly from your iPhone and iPad camera. It's a super powerful, really great looking app, but more importantly, you have all of this power in your pocket and it's always with you. PDF Pen Scan Plus has been recently uh, updated to version 2.0, which is a free upgrade for existing users. And now it will help you blast through those stacks of documents and receipts way faster and better than ever before. PDF Pen Scan Plus now automates capturing an image, cropping it, and setting the size and color depth of the scan. So to to try and explain it a little bit for you, basically now all you need to do is you open the app, it goes to the viewfinder, you point it at documents, and it just does it for you. You don't have to press anything. It just does it, which is absolutely incredible. You just point your phone at the document and off it goes. Of course, you can export multiple documents at once, which makes batch scanning even easier than ever. Um, We have the on-device OCR capabilities that allow you to grab text for copying and pasting into other apps. And OCR also even names the files by date automatically. And you can export all of these out to iCloud or Dropbox um, so you can access these files wherever you want. And, you know, also on PDF Pen, you can access them there as well, which is another great Smile app. Um, I just think that these apps are fantastic. And uh, Smile have a new uh, bundle stuff that they're doing. So PDF Pen Scan Plus is available in the PDF Pen, uh, sorry, the PDF Business Kit bundle, along with PDF Pen, which is for iPad and iPhone. You can get these apps bundled together for $21.99 US. Now, on their own, PDF Pen Scan Plus is $6.99 and PDF Pen is $19.99. So... If you want to buy one of them, you should probably get both of them for $22. It's absolutely fantastic. So the best scanner is the one that you have with you. So go grab PDF Pen Scan Plus from the App Store today. You can learn more at smilesoftware.com slash upgrade. Thank you so much to Smile for the continued support of this show. They're awesome. We love them. Thank you, Smile. Spinal Tap. Yes, I I feel like this is the post-show. I'd be like, Mike didn't do any research. <laughs> Except he watched a movie and took yeah. notes. <laughs> yeah. We made him watch it. <laughs> made him we watch made him it. watch it. <laughs> All right, you watched one of my favorites. This is Spinal Tap. Yep. From 1984, mm-hmm. directed by Rob Reiner, who directed The Princess Bride. Um, and this is a uh, a mockumentary at a time when that was not a genre, which it's sort of become now, it's a fake documentary about a fake rock band. And I, I'm told that at the time people watched it and thought it was real, which I kind of can't believe. 
but I'm told that that was the case. So this is a a, a rock band uh, with a, uh, a documentary directed by Marty DeBerge, who is played by Rob Reiner, and the band features Michael McKeon and Harry Shearer and Christopher Guest as the three primary uh, band members in the in the one of the world's loudest bands. No no value judgments. <laughs> Spinal Tap. So what did you think? Tell me about your experience watching this movie. So I have a theory about why people thought it was real. Yeah. Because they decided that it was an English band. Ah, that that's that's true. Also, the the very beginning of the movie when they're talking to fans and there's like that one woman who's like, oh, well, you know, you just become one with the music, man. Those were real heavy metal fans. That was th- those people are real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can actually... tell. Those those little, I think they're called Vox Pops. I think that's what. Yeah, it's oh, called. Sure. Um, they they I have in my notes like one. So there's two reasons that I think that people believe this. They chose an English band, so you could, as an American, conceivably have never heard of them. Also, that especially at the start, the it's shot so convincingly. The vox pops, like the, the, those little conversations with people. The editing looks really good. They use archive footage quite well to show like the band's history, yeah. and the dialogue is delivered like a documentary. They talk over each other. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, they're saying things that don't make any sense. I think the movie was uh, was largely improvised. Yeah, they had a. They to, had a, It has to have been. They had a through line, but it's improvised, and and you get that feeling like this is we're watching real people talk here. They're not reading from a script and acting this out. There, they knew what the scene was supposed to do, but then there was just a huge amount of improvisation. I th- I think legendarily, the first cut of this movie was like six hours long because they had all of this stuff. They took out whole subplots and. Uh, one of the DVDs has like an hour of extra things oh, <laughs> that love, they I cut out. That. It's just am- it's amazing. Well, actually, one of the I think there's a joke that's in the cut scenes that's funnier than any single joke in the movie. Um, but I understand why they why they cut so much of it. So yeah, I think I think I think you're right that it, verisimilitude is added from having um, having that Im- improv sort of style because it does feel like you're just watching events occur instead of seeing a scene acted out. So there are because there are like jokes that happen in the movie that are thrown away oh like, yeah they're literally like somebody moves on because it was a bad joke and that is not the type <laughs> of thing that you would hear or like where they say something and you hear them improvising like you hear the improvising when they say that one of them choked it's like oh yeah the drummer died because he choked on his vomit like because he choked on vomit on vomit, vomit yeah oh no wait no somebody else's vomit like and it was yeah. like you know that you could hear them like mm-hmm. workshopping the joke and it was like this feels real. I can yeah, I a, genuinely see how people could have could have mistaken that. There's a moment where um where uh, Rob Reiner is reading reviews of Spinal Tap albums and he gets to the you're going to note the time code for this one Mike. He gets to the point where he says your album Shark Sandwich. And that that was a two-word review which was just shit sandwich. And if you watch the 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 guys in the band at that point they're all just laughing. You can see them smiling in the scene because he's taken them by surprise with these reviews and all they manage is like, Oh, you can't write that. That's not real. Let me see yeah. that. <laughs> it's like, that's not a real review. But, <laughs> no one will print that. <laughs> but they're just, but they're just trying to make them laugh. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it it's, uh, but then again, I have those moments where I'm like, how would anybody believe that's real? But it is, it is completely straight of this, this happened. There's no, there's no real winks or anything like that. It's like, no, this is, this is the story. There, there's never a reveal that it's all a joke. It's just, that's the movie. Um, so what else did you notice? So um, basically, uh, unlike some of the other uh, movies that we've watched, my notes are, 
uh, effectively all quotes. <laughs> so I think my first, the first joke that I really, really laughed at was, so they go, they're at this like, um, a, a, like an album launch party or like a tour launch party. Uh, and they're at the, like the, it's been put on by the music label and, uh, they, for some reason, and I think it may have just been for this joke, the the, the people giving out food are mimes. Oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dana uh, Carvey and and uh, Billy Crystal among them. Yeah. So they're they're like they're a they're basically just mimes giving out like they're, they're mm-hmm. serving food and they're backstage. Then it just goes backstage, cuts to a conversation between two of the mimes because they're talking about what food to serve next and one guy one guy says to the other guy mime is money mime is money yep (laughs) so good yeah that's billy crystal (laughs) billy crystal in a very small part and he's berating dana carvey uh yeah before he was on saturday night live i think yeah a a little bit of research i found that this this actually started as a saturday night live sketch uh that is, uh, I don't know if that's true. I, I read it on Wikipedia, so it must be that true. Might, oh, it must be true. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, they so Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal were cast members on Saturday Night Live, although I thought that was after, maybe it was just before. I don't know. It, it, it is all tied up together in that way, that they, that they all knew each other, I think, through Saturday Night Live. And in fact, all of the members of Spinal Tap have been cast members of Saturday Night Live now at one time or other. Michael McKeon much later, um, but they they all have been. And, and then Christopher Guest has gone on to direct several um, well-reviewed fake documentaries in this sort of in this style um, about different subjects. Uh, but this is this is sort of where it all started. What other uh, what other notes do you have? What other lines do you have? So, uh, well, then uh, interspersed throughout all of this movie is uh, th- they're on tour, right? So Spinal Tap yeah. have come to America for their tour mm-hmm. to to. Uh, to promote their album is it sniff the glove smell the glove smell the glove yeah um which is a whole other subplot that i'll get to in a minute <laughs> which is fantastic i I love that um so they 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 show them they show like songs that are happening now the songs i found out obviously as many people anyone that's seen the movie known oh, they're all actually performed by the actors yes Be- and also like uh i, I knew about this because i mean i've known about spinal tap um for for years, it's just it's just something that's in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Like they performed a couple of shows in the UK a few years ago. They 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 were at Glastonbury yeah. and then they did a one night world tour at Wembley <laughs> Arena. <laughs> uh, and so one of the songs. This is when I realized what the music is. Right, they do a song called the. I I, I think it may be called the bigger the cushion. Or oh, that was just at least one. Oh, no, of no, it's big. It's it's big bottom. Big bottom. The name yeah, of the that's song. that's yeah. the next qu- quote from the song that I yeah. have, which is obviously a parody of Queen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Right. right. Fat, fat bottom girls. Yeah. Fat mm-hmm. bottom girls. So this is what yeah. I note for. Then I have another thing after. Basically, every song is parodying another British band. So they have I I noted parodies of ACDC, Beatles, mm-hmm. Queen, Rolling Stones, and the Who. Yeah. Oh yeah. So like they're and, just and, clear, like they're parts. And, and the idea is that Spinal Tap. It's not. It's not that the movie is parodying them. I think the idea is that Spinal Tap is completely unoriginal. Yeah, and is just knocking off every other band. Like there's the the Who one is my I think my favorite because they're just singing like this heavy metal rock song, and then they start doing the keyboard part of like Tommy or something. Oh yeah, and it's just like in the middle, and then they just carry on. It's like, 
<laughs> and the the Rolling Stones one's really great as well. Um, so then, they're, basically, one of the big problems that they're having uh, in America is that they cannot get their album launched because the cover is it's offensive. Is offensive. Yes. And uh, there's a conversation between I think the manager's name's Ian. Yes. And a record label executive called Bobby, I think. Bobby Fleckman. Yes. Bobby Fleckman. Like, what's her name again? Bobby Fleckman. Fran- Bobby Fleckman. Bobby like Fleckman. It's Fran Drescher. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby so Fleckman. They're talking about album covers. And then she, uh, Ian's saying about how important the album cover is. And Bobby's like, what about the White Album? There was literally nothing on that cover. <laughs> Which I really like, which then uh, leads into later, like sort of going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, like Kmart won't stock it and stuff like that, to the point where the album <laughs> arrives at like a sound check that they're doing, and it's just completely black. There's yeah. no writing on it, <laughs> it's nothing, it's just a completely black cover, which uh, there's a couple of lines that I really love, which we've mentioned, you mentioned here to me before, and, and this is what I think prompted why this would be the next movie, <laughs> uh, None More Black. There is How none, much blacker could it be? None, none more, black. more black. And also, de- it looks like death. Death sells. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, yeah. it's the opposite of the White Album is what they end up going for. Uh, but the problem with uh, an all-black cover opposed to an all-white cover is you cannot read what's on, what's on no. it. It's like, it just looks like a really nice mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and it's shrink wrapped, so they're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at here. Yeah, yeah. Actual bands have done that too. I think somewhat in homage, but they put like a sticker on it or something. To explain yeah, I mean, and then but there was there was nothing on it. So no, uh, what I have skipped out with a black cover bit is goes to eleven, which in context, even though I know it, it was still really funny. So I know the line and I knew what was coming, but the delivery of it is excellent. Because then I'm going back, why don't you just make ten louder? It's like, but this goes to eleven. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They, no, the, the, I think the real comedy in the in the line, and everybody quotes the line. The real comedy in the line is that um, that Rob Reiner, as as Marty DeBerge, is trying to reason with him. Right? He's like, well, you know, whenever ours go to eleven, whenever you want that extra bit and go off the cliff, and you're at ten, you have nowhere else to go. Well, you do have one. You can you can take it up to eleven, and 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 then Rob Reiner says, well, why don't you just make the whole thing louder and make ten that much more louder. Which sets up the, but these go to 11. <laughs> like, oh, I can't even deal with this guy. That's what makes that funny. It's much more funny, I think, in context. So th- this is uh, Nigel, who is the lead guitarist. Yes. Uh, Solo. He, his solos are his specialty. With the violin, <laughs> where he's playing the guitar with the violin and the other guitar yeah. with his foot. <laughs> yeah. My, so- uh, the co- my solos are my trademark. That's it. Um, and this is at a section where he's showing him around his his, his uh, guitars, uh, and I love the bit where he's like, "Don't look at this one. Don't even touch it. No one can <laughs> it can't touch be, it. It can't be played. It don't, can't even. Don't even look at it." <laughs> so Nigel kind of is Paul McCartney, right? Because the other the other the other uh, thing that's going on is is it oh what's is it David? David, David Saint, Saint, yeah, David Saint Humbins, his girlfriend Janine comes and is touring with the band, and at, at some point, and she's got lots of creative ideas yeah, that infuriates Nigel, and yeah. they, they're and they're childhood friends. It's very much Lennon and McCartney. They're childhood friends, and when and you see them in flashback, they start out as. Uh, because they keep changing to be whatever is popular. They start out as a Beatlesque kind of band and turn into a, uh, and then turn into heavy metal over time. And so they're, they're childhood friends. And now the, the, um, the girlfriend has come in between them. Yeah. And then they're in Memphis. Um, and then oh. there's the, at Graceland <laughs> and they're, they're, they're trying to harmonize 
Heartbreak Hotel. Heartbreak Hotel. Terribly. <laughs> Standing at the grave and then... Because the, basically the, their struggle... Because the Memphis show's just been cancelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nigel says to David about how this puts it into perspective. It's, it's too much perspective. Which is, which is really great. Too much yeah. perspective, man. Too much perspective. Yeah. It's, there's a, there's an extra word in there that you're, <laughs> yep. you're dropping out. Yep. Just to save me editing work. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, that's one of my favorite. I use that all the time. Too much effing perspective. <laughs> it's like, it uh, puts it all in perspective at Elvis's grave. Um, yeah. I love that moment. And I then there's the great. So, like, I'm, I'm basically just jumping to my favorite bits of the movie. Sure. Uh, like, and then there's the great bit where uh, there's so much good stuff happening in this performance when they're in the alien pods. Oh yeah, yeah. So they're they're in these because all of the the performances have funny bits in them, but this one is like there's there's multiple things happening. So they're they're at these alien pods on stage, and what's really great about these performances is they're doing these arena level production in tiny halls <laughs> and yeah. like theaters because the American tour is like. They're like a thousand people. And this actually goes back to, there's a part where, um, I'm sure I, I thought I had, oh yeah, I had this in my notes where, what's the name of the, the, the guy who's, is it DeBerg? Marty DeBerg. Marty DeBerg. The, he's the director. Yeah. Yeah. Who's like the, the, the fake director in the thing as well. Right. So he's, you know, pretending to be the mm-hmm. interviewer and the documentary maker. Um, he's in, he's talking to the manager, Ian. He's like, is the popularity of the group waning? Because they've gone from 10,000 seat arenas to 1000 seat arenas. And Ian's response is no, their appeal is just becoming more selective. Yeah. <laughs> that's some good, that's some good PR. And the pod scene is rock and roll creation. So that's the, that's the who song. That's where in the middle, they've got the, yep. they've got the little keyboard solo and they do the weird, harmony falsetto thing that happens and in that scene harry shearer spends it doesn't come out of his pod and is fighting and is trapped and they have people trying to free him and the moment that he comes out everybody else is going back in and then he thinks about going back in and gets like trapped in between that's so bad nigel has a tiny guitar like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's a ukulele. It's just a really small guitar, and like it's just no no attention is paid to that. But that was the first <laughs> the first thing that I noticed. His guitar is tiny. Yep. Um, Nobody knows why. There's obviously the running joke of the drummers. They have like 32 drummers over the history yep. of the band that have all died, mm-hmm. uh, in in ridiculous ways. Right, including a bizarre gardening accident. Yeah, which which oh, it's one of those it's one of those things where they don't even want to investigate it because it's so weird. Yeah. It's better left unknown. <laughs> yeah. There was one thing yeah, well, I meant to mention right at the start that I didn't. The British accents, the London accents, so good. Everyone. Oh, yeah? It. Yeah. Oh, they, well, because they are going for regional London accents, and they nail it. Huh. Well, Christopher Guest is English. Uh, he, is a, he is an English-American. He has dual citizenship, and he is actually Baron Hayden Guest. He is... Mm-hmm. He is uh, he is a baron. He is a hereditary hereditary peer, believe it or not. Didn't but um, I believe was raised in America. Um, but he he's been exposed to enough English, I think, to do the English accent. But like Michael McKeon is just an American guy. He was Squiggy on the uh, Laverne and Shirley. He's but they and and Harry Shearer likewise. So it's good to hear that the accents are pretty good. Obviously, Ian is is actually an English actor, but. Um, they they wanted it to be the English rock band, right? The English heavy metal band, obscure, strange British heavy metal band is what they were going for. Yep, because it was like when I saw it and I saw the the cast members, I was like, why didn't they pick British people? Why did they have American people? 
you know, I, think I know it's because they wanted to make the movie, but then well, they, yeah, they, they were the ones talking, who came up with the idea and like yeah. we could be we could be British because <laughs> like at that point I didn't know the inception of it as well. I thought uh-huh. you know it was just a movie that was cast, but no, they came up with these characters and they wanted to make a movie out of it. But they do an incredibly good job. And looking at the IMDb trivia, there is a bunch of points in the movie where there are like uh, they're in like an airport and there's like Tanai announcements, which is the actual actors in their American accents. Ah, uh, yeah, that, that's littered throughout it. Um. There's this great scene where Nigel is playing the piano. Um, oh my god! And he so the first the first time I watched this scene, this is the moment where we had to pause the tape, and I was literally, and this has happened very rarely in my life. I literally had fallen on the floor and was laughing uncontrollably, and tears were streaming down, and we had to stop it for this scene. This is the scene that did it's, it to me. It is so good. So. He's playing the piano and he's playing this beautiful piece of music. And this is where like you you think that the, the, the plot's about to turn here because Nigel's super creative and he wants to go out and, and you know, my my thing feeling my thinking was, Oh, this is where it's gonna turn because he's now gonna go away and make really, really beautiful music. Right? So he's he's creating this piece and he's like humming along and he's saying that like what is it? I'm a mix between Beethoven no, is it Bach no. and Mozart? Bach right? and Mozart, and he calls it Mark. Is it Mark? It's kind of a Mark piece, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's this beautiful music, and then they're talking about it. it's like, what you know, what do you want to do with this? And it's like, oh, imagine this, and this is the the horns coming in here, and then uh, it's like, what do you call this piece? Lick my love pump. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so good, unbelievable, just unbelievable. Yeah, oh, I really on the that. floor crying. Just crying, so and then, ridiculous. Uh, Tiny Stonehenge is just yeah. Which is the and the joke there is that they wrote it on the back of a napkin and they put the one the two marks for inches instead of the one mark for feet, and so they make it in inches instead of feet. So it's a one twelfth scale Stonehenge made out of foam. But they still use it on stage, and yeah, it just and they have ridiculous. little people dancing around it, and yep. yeah, and it's it's just this great thing. And then it kind of the the movie like kind of goes the way that you expect at this point. So like Nigel's really upset about the fact that Janine, which is uh David's wife, um, is is getting she basically becomes the manager of the band, so he quits the band. Yeah. Then the band is about to break up because they can't continue without Nigel. Um, oh, and, then... and the and the and and the, the breakup happens because the 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 tour reaches its low point when they play a dinner dance at an Air Force base, <laughs> <laughs> and Fred Willard is there with his uh, with his little Air Force uniform on to welcome them, and and then there the it the uh, air traffic control signal comes across the guitar and he throws it down, and that's the end of the band. Um, and then they're kind of like they're like, what songs can we play? Other so they 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 go to other venues like they're in a theme park and it's puppets yeah. and puppet, spinal tap puppet show and spinal i specifically asked it to say spinal tap and puppet show like but that's you, better but you have a really <laughs> big dressing room yeah uh, <laughs> and then they're, they're, they're backstage talking about the set and they're, they're crossing off all the songs that they can't do about nigel uh and then they have uh, a 10 minute set yeah which is which is hilarious it's the basic so it's time for Mick. the Derek, uh, it's Derek, Derek, Derek Smalls, yeah, yeah, and he's like, we have a ten minute set here, and it's like, oh. <laughs> so, so we'll do the reformed Spinal Tap Jazz Odyssey <laughs> with yeah. their uh, meandering uh, <laughs> jazz. He wrote this. Derek wrote one this. Boy. It's like, oh boy, great, yeah. 
So then, like, they're coming to the fact that the band is now ending. So there's this great scene of the album rap party where nobody is, the tour rap party, nobody's there. Uh, Yeah, but they're on the top of a building in Los Angeles, which the entire movie was shot in Los Angeles. But this is the moment where they can actually use that. So they're on top of a, like, a hotel or something at a patio pool thing in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles looking over the city. And this is the, you know, it's the end. It's not, obviously not going to continue. And uh, Derek and David are talking about all the projects that they can now take up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Jack the Ripper musical. Yeah, we're lucky. We, we can finally do the Jack the Ripper musical. It's like, you're a naughty boy, Mr. Jack, or something. It's, yeah, I really, mm-hmm. it's a, a line in their song. <laughs> uh, and then at the final performance uh, that they're at, they have a, a surprise return from Richard. Um, and he says that, the, that they're at, what, like number five in the Japanese chart or something? Yeah, isn't it so? So what? Is it? Nigel comes back. Nigel, why did I say Richard? I don't, I don't know, know. Where that name came from. Yeah, Nigel comes back. It's very, it's very British. You see, Nigel. Nigel comes back and says he's got Ian has who's are, are also Ian's been fired and Nigel's quit. Um, but Sex Farm is on the charts in in Japan. <laughs> so how about we go to Japan and suddenly, um. I, they do the last gig, right? And and they welcome him back on stage and then, you know, cut to they're playing Japan before excited throngs in Japan and uh, and Ian is back and they're playing, they're big in Japan, the end, basically. Yep. Yeah, big in Japan. <laughs> Love this movie. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. I, yeah. I didn't know because this is a very, this is a very peculiar sort of movie. Um and it, it, I, I think it helps if you if you get some of the jokes of the of the music, but I feel like it works even if you don't know a lot of the references to the music because it feels authentic. It, the music feels authentically bad, but authentic. And and the, you know they are actually playing their instruments and um and what they're doing is. You didn't mention when they get lost in Cleveland, which I really like that scene where they just keep on "Hello Cleveland, Hello Cleveland," and they just and they keep coming oh. back to the same guy, and he's like, yeah. "What are you doing here? It's it's over there." And they, I they have can't that find down, the stage. But, but That's a real story. It. That's actually in a list of things. Of um, I think they made a list of like famous tour stories, like uh, like demanding the brown M and M's and all that. They've got the scene where they want the little tiny sandwiches with the things cut off and stuff like that it's, it's like I can't use this bread it's too small I fold the small. thing over and it all breaks in half yeah but yeah I love I love it when they're getting lost it's like don't don't let it go guys go let it go come on rock and roll rock and roll <laughs> and they can't find the stage yeah it's 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 a uh, I love it every time I watch it I laugh and laugh and uh, it's it was shot in 16 millimeter so I've got the blu-ray I don't even know I mean it, it looks a little bit better but it's like it was it, it is a it is shot on a on low quality film stock it is a you know grungy you know mid 80s documentary that's what it's meant to look like and uh but it is i'm glad you liked it cuz you know it's people doing fake english accents and it's from the 80s so i didn't know whether it would work for you or not but i'm glad it did that's my two favorite things yeah <laughs> 80s movies of fake british accents <laughs> well, uh, i i check. I I did really really love this movie. I love the way it looked. I love the way that that it looked kind of grungy. I, I feel like if it was polished up the Blu-ray, it would lose a lot of what it's. Oh about. yeah, there would be no point. Um, and and I, I like this. We're on three for three. I, that's good too. Well, I'm trying to be careful with with the movies I select for you. So the so I've got a couple bit, bits of, of of trivia for you. So the the first DVD that they did of this was a Criterion Collection DVD, and the actors 
and Rob Reiner are on it talking about how they made the movie, which is really cool. Um, that went out of print, and MGM did their own DVD of it, and that's got a commentary track that's them in character complaining about how Marty DeBerge ruined their careers with this oh. movie. Um, and it's funny because that Criterion is like the only time they've ever gone out of character to talk about the movie. All the rest of it is in character. So I have both, and then I bought the Blu-ray too. And then and then there are bonus tracks on uh, scattered across all these different DVDs that are that are um, things pulled out of the movie because, like I said, it, legendarily it was this incredibly long movie. And there was a whole subplot about the opening. Um, the opening act was a, a an all woman rock band, and they were becoming famous as Spinal Tap was becoming not famous. and And, and this is a story that happens a lot, where the opening act suddenly catches fire, and uh, they're bigger than the, the act that they're that they're opening for. Um, and that also there was the implication that the um, the women in that band were sleeping with the men in Spinal Tap, and there's you still see that the only part of the subplot that exists anymore is you see various members of Spinal Tap get herpes sores on their mouths. Yeah, I I noticed that and just thought it was a funny joke. Yeah, so so what what it's supposed to be is like one of the women in in the in the uh it it, it progresses because they're all sleeping with the women in the other band. And the women in the other band are sleeping with them. Uh but that they just took it all out. So that that doesn't even exist anymore. I saw um I saw Cheryl Crow open for Crowded House, and every time I think uh, I think about that subplot, that's what I think of is like Cheryl Crow, right as she exploded and become huge, was doing was was opening for Crowded House, <laughs> and I remember like as that tour went on. By the time I got to San Francisco, it was like she she had she had big hits and had just been on David Letterman, and they were like their album had taken a year to get released in America. So uh, I think about that a little bit. Um, and then the, and and then the, uh, the, so the cut scene that I really love, there's a scene with Bruno Kirby, who is the, um, he's the limo driver. He's the one who says, who talks about Frank Sinatra all the time. <laughs> they don't understand the real if love loved and lost, that he lost. Like Frank has, then you know what life's about. <laughs> um, there is a scene that they cut from the movie where, um, everybody is in a hotel room and they're, um, they're getting high and ordering pizza. And uh, he, I think Bruno Kirby, I think brings in the pizza, and they tell him to stay, and he's like trying to defer and all of that, and say no, 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 you know, I, I'm just gonna go, and then there's just a hard cut, and it, and Bruno Kirby is now standing in his underwear, <laughs> um, uh, obviously he has partaken of the drugs that are available, um, and the pizza box, I think the pizza box is empty now, um, and he's he's singing into a uh, banana or something. I, I think it's not, you know, or or just a pretend microphone. He's singing a Frank Sinatra song, and 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 it's the end of it. And it's like my way or something. And he finishes it, and he points at the band and says, "Now that's music." And then collapses. <laughs> and it is the funniest thing. I think it's funnier than anything in the movie. <laughs> and I understand why they cut it because it goes on forever and is not really necessary. But I love the the ongoing obsession that Bruno Kirby has with Frank Sinatra and how he ends up in his underpants singing Frank Sinatra in a hotel room and then he passes out and everybody laughs and that's the end of the scene. Um so yeah, you should check out the bonus the bonus stuff if you can find that. There's some yeah. good there's some good stuff in there because they had I and I think they made the right decision to make it short because it's 82 minutes long. I think I think get in get out, tell your jokes, be done, but it is funny that they had the many hours version that came out of the out of all the improv. 
All right, two for or three for three. Woo! That's good. Yeah, I love this one. I'm glad you like it. Somebody was asking on Twitter what the best succession of uh, three films by a director, three consecutive films by a director is, and um, I Rob Reiner in his at the beginning of his directorial career had a really great uh, a really great streak that includes This Is Spinal Tap and uh, and The Princess Bride. Um, Do I need to watch the other one now? Uh, well, the problem is that there's sort of there's there's a there's a more middling one in between. So this is Spinal Tap. Uh, then he directed The Sure Thing, which actually is a really good as a '80s teen sex sex comedy. It is actually really quite good um, because it's got heart. Uh, and then he did Stand by Me, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's kind of a you know that's a that's a nice kind of classic '80s movie with Will Wheaton and River Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did The Princess Bride and When Harry Met Sally and Misery and A Few Good Men. These are all pretty good movies. And then and then he didn't. Then he stopped making good movies. But it's a really great collection between 1984 and and uh, 1992, where he made some some very good movies, including some of my favorite movies of all time. But not three in a row. They all were kind of mixed in with uh, some of the highlights and the and the kind of middle middle stuff. But. But this is Spinal Tap when Harry Met Sally and The Princess Bride are three of my favorite favorite films. So, yeah. I like this one an awful lot. So thank you for I'm recommending gl- it. I'm glad. And I'm glad to those who stuck around to listen to Mike watch as a movie. Indeed. Brought to Indeed. you by Smile. Thank you, Smile, for making Mike watch a movie. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll thank our sponsors too. Our friends are over at Warby Parker, MailRoute, and Linda for helping us out, sponsoring this episode, along with Smile. Uh, we love all those guys. They help make this show possible. Yeah. Um, I want to thank Jason Snell for joining me as always. You can find Mr. Jason Snell. He is on Twitter. He's at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. And he's the editor-in-chief of the Fantastic Six Colors. Dot com and you can find more there. Don't forget to check out Clockwise on Relay FM and of course the great shows that uh, all the great shows that Jason does over on the Incomparable too. Um, I am Mike Hurley. I'm at I Mike I M Y K E. Um, I am a host of many shows on the, the fabulous Relay FM, of which you are listening to right now. Uh, this show can be found along with many others over at Relay.fm. Uh, but thanks most of all to you for listening. Until next time. Say goodbye, Jason Snow. Goodbye, everybody. It's one louder, isn't it? Straight to the left.